Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. And what a great day. We are starting a new series, uh, the book of Hebrews, and we've entitled this series, Stand Strong, because uh, we believe that as we learn about what the book of Hebrews teaches, it's going to help us stand strong for God, grow in our knowledge of him, our faith, our, our belief in what he's doing. So I'm excited about Hebrews, excited about jumping in this book, because frankly, it's a book that a lot of people have read. They just maybe haven't understood it as clearly as they'd like. And I just love that we're coming to Hebrews for this reason. We finished Acts and, and really learned a lot about the Holy Spirit. In fact, there were some people who said, why do you keep talking about the Holy Spirit? I said, because Acts does. And now we're in Hebrews and it talks about Jesus. Tells us how awesome he is. Tells us how wonderful he is. Tells us what he's done for us. And really gives us a a fuller picture of who he is. The Gospels tell us what he was like when he confined himself to time and space. He was always God, never less than God, but he set aside the prerogatives and privileges of deity and came to earth. And yet if all we know about Jesus is what we read in the Gospels, we don't have a complete picture. Because he is God, very God. God in the flesh. And that's a fearsome thing. That's an amazing thing to think that the God who breathed and the universe came into order is the God who walked among us. N.T. Wright in his book, For All God's Worth, writes this. How can you live the with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become a human? I love that. The fire has become flesh. That life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is so amazing. He is so powerful. He is so majestic. He is so wonderful. He is so fearsomely awesome that the thought of that should literally blow our minds. And I'm afraid too many times we've relegated him just to what we've seen in the Gospels, as beautiful as that is, and not in any way to deny or denigrate what the Gospels tells us. It's just that there's more to the story, and the writer of Hebrews tells us about it. It not only explains who Jesus is, it tells us what he did on the cross which is so important because if you and I don't understand what he did on the cross, here's what happens. People live in, in this sense of guilt, self-condemnation, like they can't please God, and it's because they don't understand what he did at the cross. So this is a great study, and I'm excited to be able to jump into it. And uh, this morning, we're going to cover the first three verses. So uh, probably that means people are like, how long is it going to last? Maybe 20, 30, 20, 40, who knows? Um, teasing. Just a little background, though, on the book. You know, the most asked question this week, I was really surprised because I was asked it over and over again here about Hebrews. So people were asking me about it. Are we starting Hebrews? Yes. Uh, I get a question. What is that? 
who wrote the book of Hebrews. So um, let me just say this. We don't know. So some people say Paul did it. Some say Peter did it. Some said that, or say that Priscilla did it or Apollos wrote it. Uh, Origen, one of the early church fathers, said, we don't know. And I think he's right. We just simply don't know who wrote it other than we know the Holy Spirit inspired it, that it's the word of God written to you and I to tell us about Jesus. Now, it will help you like any book of the Bible. It helps us to understand the purpose for the reading by recognizing who it was written to, or the purpose for the writing by recognizing who it was written to. And there are four groups of people that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. The first group are Jewish people who were intellectually convinced and committed to Christ. They were people who had been raised in Judaism, but now had discovered that Jesus was the Messiah. And as a result, they were persecuted. They were ostracized. They were, um, at times, had their property seized. They were hated by the government. And they should have been mature enough to stand up to that and to stand strong, but they weren't. They didn't have confidence. Some of them were thinking about going back to Judaism in this sense. They were thinking about what Paul talks about in Galatians, about going back under the law, observing the law and all of the ceremonial laws. And the writer of Hebrews cautions against that. In fact, I would suggest when we look at each one of these groups, there are some in this room that will identify with those groups. There are some of you here today, and following Christ has resulted in your family making fun of you. Following Christ maybe cost you a promotion at work because people didn't like you. Maybe people have threatened you. Maybe you're no longer, you're at school and you're no longer in the in crowd. And you're wondering if it's worth it. The writer of Hebrews tells us it is worth it. Stand strong. And we're going to see that. There's a second group. And these would be Jewish non-Christians, people who had heard the message. They were intellectually convinced, but they wouldn't commit their life to Christ. They knew the truth about Christ. They just wouldn't make a commitment to Christ. And I, I know this to be true, that in every single church, there are people who believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe Jesus is real. They, they believe they're sympathetic to what the Bible says. They've just never committed their life to Christ. They've never opened their heart to salvation and experience. They've watched it on the outside. They've just never experienced it on the inside, giving their heart to Jesus. There's a third group, and these would be Jewish people who had embraced Christ but walked away. At one time, they'd known the truth. At one time, they'd experienced salvation. But now, having experienced it, they chose willingly to walk away from Christ and became what, what we would call theologically an apostate. Can somebody walk away? Yes. I don't believe it happens easily. I don't believe it happens often. But when it does happen, it happens with dire consequences. We'll read that in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says this, for people who do that, there can come a point where somebody chooses that 
And at that point, repentance is impossible, is what the writer of Hebrews says. That's a shocking, that's a startling thing, and we're going to learn about that. And then there were some Jewish people who were neither convinced nor committed to Christ. We could say like the nation of Israel, they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit wants to show them he is the Messiah. So you have these four different groups addressed in the book. And here's the importance. One of the big keys to understanding the book of Hebrews is you got to know who the writer's writing to or it's not going to make sense. When you come to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the focus. We're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to learn one thing in particular, and this it could be summed up in this way. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. He is superior to everything and everyone. I mean, in the writer of Hebrews uh, terminology, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to the to the high priest. He's superior to the old covenant. He's superior to the sacrifices. He's superior to He's better than any Old Testament person, ritual, sacrifice. He is without equal. And let me just say this. Jesus Christ is better than your best day. He's better than your bank account. He's better than every passion you have. He's better than any career you have. He's better than any home you could own. He's better than any vacation you go on. He's better than any security you could have. He's better than any person you'll ever know. He will never let you down. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. You can count on him and trust your life to him. He is better. Always better. All the time better. Never anything but better. So we're going to look at Jesus this morning. We're just going to get, as I said, into the first three verses. I want you to see three things. Number one, I want you to notice this. He is the ultimate expression of God's word. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's word. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at it, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke. God speaks. It's what he's gonna tell us to our forefathers, through the prophets, at many times, various ways. God's speaking all the time. I believe this, that as you're sitting here, God's speaking to you. God's touching your heart. God can come to you and and he delights in revealing himself to you. He's a God who speaks. That old hymn says, and he walks with me and he talks with me. That's true. He speaks through his word. He speaks through a still small voice. He can speak through a dream. He can speak through another person talking to you. And all of a sudden, you know, it's God who's talking to you. God is a God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews says, God spoke and many times, a lot of times, when I'm reading my Bible, I've taken joy in just every time I see, and the Lord said, I, I highlight it in a certain color so that now when I look at my Bible, it's all these places. And it just reminds me, we serve a God who is speaking all the time. We serve a God who loves us so much, wants relationship with us, is constantly trying to encourage us. He's a God who speaks. And he spoke many times and in various ways. Literally, 
you could say he spoke piecemeal. He spoke in pieces would be, so little bit here, little bit there, God speaking, didn't tell people everything all at once. But in the Old Testament, how did he speak? He spoke to our forefathers. Who are we talking about? He, he, he spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob. Before them, he spoke to Noah. After them, he spoke to Moses. He spoke to David. He spoke. He's a, a God who spoke personally to people because he's a personal God, and he'll speak personally to you. He's a God who speaks. And then he spoke through the prophets. Spoke to men moved by the Holy Spirit who wrote down the word of God. Men like Isaiah. Men like Jeremiah. Men like Ezekiel. Men like Daniel, one of the godliest men who ever lived. Men like Hosea and, and, and men like Amos and Micah. And we could go on and name them all. He has spoken many times. He's spoken in various ways. And then it tells us this, verse 2. But in these last days, you say, what are the last days? The days we're living in. They started when Jesus came to earth. And we believe we're in the end of the last days. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken to us through Jesus. We can put it this way. Jesus is the sum of all God has to say. He is God in human flesh, 100% deity in 100% humanity. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, look at Jesus. You want to know if God cares? Listen to Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He was the ultimate expression of God's word. I have to believe that probably John is thinking about this when he writes his gospel, maybe decades later, and he says this, in the beginning was the word. Who's John talking about? The word is, is a name given to Jesus. We know that because verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. So think of this. In the beginning was the word. It's an interesting Greek word. It's the word logos. The Pagans understood Logos as, as the rationale behind the universe, the reason for existence. You could put it this way. In the beginning was the reason for existence. Jesus is the reason for existence. And unless you know him, you'll never know why you're here. You'll never know what life's about. He is the reason behind everything, not only in the greater world, but in your life. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word of God. In the beginning was the rationale for everything that is. And the Word was with God. Jesus was with God. And the Word and Jesus was God. He's God, very God. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's Word. The second thing we see is Jesus 
is the ultimate expression of God's work. What does God want to do? What is God's plan? What is God's purpose for your life, my life, for the world, for humanity, for eternity? Jesus is the expression of all of that. You could wrap it up into one word, Jesus. He's the rationale. He's the reason. Apart from him, nothing else will make sense. Only in him will everything make sense. Only in him, when all things are wrapped up under him and for him and to him and through him, will we really, at that point, understand all that this whole thing was about. He is the ultimate expression of God's work. The writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. I don't know about you, but this is a very interesting order to this sentence. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. You would think it would say, he made the universe, and he is the heir of the universe. It, it will be his. It's like the order is reversed. And I want to suggest to you, that's on purpose and the reason why is because how the story ends is more important than how it began. And until you understand the end of the story, the beginning of the story doesn't make sense. As well, I want you to notice it was his before he created it. He inherited it before it was even there. That's the way God works. It existed in the mind of God. Then it became a reality. And it was all his before he ever saw any of it. In other words, he owned the earth before he created the earth. Isn't that interesting? Colossians puts it this way. Paul writes this, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Say, what do you mean, all things? Exactly what it says, all things. Things seen and unseen. Watch this. Things in heaven and things on earth. Things visible and invisible. Whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. You say, what is that talking about? Those are categories, classifications of celestial beings. All of them created by God. Some of them rebelled against God and are now evil but still retain authority, power. They rule so that we can say there are good angels over certain geographic regions, over certain, have certain powers. There are evil angels that do. The most notable evil angel is Satan, created by God. But again, Satan was a created being. He is not equal to God. He couldn't stand up to God. He is weaker by a million times than Jesus. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones Celestial beings that have powers. Celestial beings that rule. Celestial beings that have authority. All things were created by him, and he's the heir of all things, as Hebrews says, so they are for him. Back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. This is very, very interesting. Typically, when you read the word, a word like universe in 
the New Testament, the Greek word would be cosmos. That would be uh, what we think of as the physical universe, both known and unknown. But what this is, this is a word that is the Greek word for ages, the eras. He created time. He not only created substance, but he created the time that was a part of substance. You say, why, why do you care about that? Why does that matter? Because he created things with an appearance of time. I mean, think about this, because a lot of times what throws a lot of Christians say, well, I just can't, I can't believe Genesis because all, we all know it's 100 billion years old and blah, 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 and people go on. Well, let me ask you this. Was Adam created as an embryo or was Adam created as a full-grown man? He's created as a full-grown man. Eve was created as a full-grown woman. They didn't come out of some primordial soup and start out as an amoeba who became, uh, you know, a little tadpole and then became, I mean, that's nonsense. God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. So God created them and he created them with the appearance of age. If he created them with the appearance of age, we can assume he created everything else with the appearance of age, Right? We can also understand that he is the one who created time itself. Time is, he lives outside of time. He is bigger than time. If we're going to talk about dimensions, you have the first dimension, the second dimension, the third dimension, the fourth dimension is time. God is, Einstein theorized that God lived in like a tenth dimension. He is so much bigger than time. He exists outside of time. This is why God can see can tell you the, what's going to happen in the future because he exists outside of time and he is at the beginning and the end simultaneously. That, that's to say he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. He was at the beginning, he's at the end, and he's at both of those places at the same time because he exists outside of time because he created time. Isn't that like... <laughs> Some of you are going to be under your seat mumbling the Greek alphabet in a moment. He created everything. How did he do it? He spoke. In the beginning, God said. Sir John Eccles, the Nobel laureate in neurophysiology, said in a speech that the chance of having the right combination of circumstances to support life on earth is about 400,000 trillion, 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 trillion to one. You say, what's that mean? There is no chance. That's what it means. He spoke it and it happened. He created everything. This world is not the result of some cosmic accident. This world is the result of an intentional, powerful, loving, caring God who in eternity before time began not only willed the creation of a universe, but willed your creation, planned for your salvation, and has a plan for your glorification in heaven. He's a very intentional God and a very powerful God. All of this, the result of a creative God who put it all together. You say, what's the upshot to me on that? And well, John, why are you taking time with this? Because sometimes we face problems in our life and we wonder if God can solve them. Oh, if we knew what he's done in the past, we'd have no question about our present or our future. Yeah. 
Jeremiah says, Ah, oh, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and outstretched arm. Then listen to what he says. Nothing is too difficult for you. If he's a God who can speak it into existence, he's a God who can heal two breaks in an ankle. If he's a God who can speak it into existence, he's a God who can go before you to accomplish a solution to that problem that has kept you awake at night, and there's no need for you to worry any longer, because when you and I know his power, it is the answer to every anxiety you and I would ever face in life. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's work. The ultimate expression of God's word. And he's also the ultimate expression of God's will. Look at it, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Again, you want to know what God's like? Just look at Jesus. Don't have to look any further. Notice it says he is the radiance of God's glory. Apagasma in the Greek, it's, it's the idea of the brightness of God. He's the shining forth of God's glory. Think of it like the sun. The brightness of the sun and the sun, it's the same essence, but it's two different things. Jesus is the same essence as the, uh, of the Father, but he is different from the Father. Same nature, but he can't be separated from God any more than you can separate the brightness of the sun from the sun. He is not God the Father, but he is God, and he manifests the brightness of God, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And every now and then, people could see it. For example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory that was in him, for a brief moment, he let it out. And when the disciples saw it, they passed out. Because his glory is so great, it's so awesome. He, Jesus said himself in John 8, 12, and I love this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He can transmit life into your life. Our world is dark. It's the darkness of sin. It's the darkness of death. It's the darkness of failure. It's the darkness of disappointment. It's the darkness of disease. But Jesus came to bring light. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring joy. He came to bring purpose. He came to bring peace. He came to bring healing. All of those are a part of who God is. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no confusion in heaven. There's no anxiety in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. He is the solution to every bit of darkness in our lives. Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is the icon. He is the image. He is the stamp is what it's saying. This is why Jesus could say in John chapter 14 and verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. But don't just look at what the gospels say. Look at them, yes. Learn them, yes. Marvel, yes. Enjoy them, yes. But it, who Jesus is is so much bigger than even the gospels would show. And that's why we're studying Hebrews. Because when we see how big he is, we understand how small our problems are. 
The size of your problem is determined in your mind by the size of your God. Big God, little problem. Big problems, little God. And we can stand strong when you and I understand the greatness of our God. And so right away, the writer of Hebrews is telling us some wonderful things about Jesus. Look at it in verse 3 as we continue on. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is so interesting. Not only did Jesus make everything, not only will he inherit everything, but in the meantime, he holds everything together. This is not the only place we read this in Scripture. Interestingly enough, this is important enough for you to know that God repeats it. The writer of Hebrews tells us about it. Paul in Colossians tells us about it in chapter 1, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He not only created the universe, he holds the universe together. He's the power behind every force in the universe. It's very interesting. Listen to this. This is from a book called The Atom. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together with the, within the confines of this tiny nucleus, and with them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Earlier, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other. So if you get you know, two magnets and you have the positive end of the magnet, you try to put them together, they repel each other. So what he's saying is the entire history of the electrical equipment has been built on these principles known as Coulomb's Law of Electrostatic Force. Then he goes on to say this, but what holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? Because you've got inside, you've got eight protons, positively charged particles who should all, that should all just repel one another. And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? In other words, you would think every atom, which is one of the most basic elements in creation, every atom would be a potential and very real nuclear explosion. I mean, what holds them together? Scientists still don't know. What they call it is strong force. We know the name of strong force, Jesus. It's interesting. It's very, very interesting because there are four forces in physics. There's strong force. There's weak force. There's electrostatic force. And there's the force of gravity. Scientists who believe in the Big Bang theory hypothesize that at the start of it, all forces were one force, and that ultimately, strong force was what shaped the universe. Interesting, isn't it? Strong force is so much stronger than any of the other forces that it is 10 to the 38th stronger than electrostatic force. And it's 10 to the 39th stronger than gravity. Strong force. He's the one 
who holds everything together. Now think about this, because the Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that this earth and everything is going to be destroyed by fire. Someday, Jesus is going to stop holding it together, and in an instant, the creation's gone. We know that because in Revelation chapter 20, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence. What are we talking about? The uncreation of the universe in a second. Isaiah says the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll, instantly gone. Why? The one who holds it together stops holding it together. Let's read on. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And as wonderful as that is, as powerful as that is, as important as that is, the greatest thing Jesus does is not sustain creation. The greatest thing he does is serve as a redeemer for creation. He's our Savior. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The work that he does in holding the world together is incredible, but if, and if he stopped holding it together, we would die. But the most wonderful work that he will ever do is the work that he did in dying for our sin. Sin's a huge problem. Some of you may be like, well, what's the big deal about sin? Sin is the problem behind every problem. Sin is the problem behind broken relationships. Sin is the problem behind addictions. Sin is the problem behind all of the wars and all of the trouble we know in our life. And sin is what keeps people from having relationship with God. And God is a God who not only speaks, God is a God who wants relationship with you and I. But if he's going to have relationship, something has to be done with sin because sin separates people from God. And so God in his love and in his goodness said, I so desperately want, I want relationship that God sent his son Jesus to do for us what you and I could never do for ourselves, and that's to die for our sin. We're going to learn more about this purification in the book of Hebrews, but now he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is amazing. One time he appears and sin's taken care of for all who believe. It's very, very interesting. Relative to this, at times people ask, how come when you go in a Catholic institution, Jesus is always on the cross, and when you go in a Protestant institution, the cross is empty? Why is that? It's, it all comes down to theology. Because in the Catholic belief, at the Mass, Jesus is back on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, though, he did it once and for all at the end of the age. 
to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice it says Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. One time took away people's sin. Back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I just want you to see this. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The reason why we don't have him on the cross in Protestantism is because he did that one time and that was done. He's now at the right hand of God. And the empty cross says the sacrifice was enough. The empty cross says one time did everything for everybody. After he had provided purification for sins, this is the Protestant's purgatory. You know what purgatory is? In Catholicism, it's a temporary hell for every single believer to purify or expiate your sin because no matter how many sacraments you partook of or did and followed in this life, you probably missed the mass you shouldn't have missed. You probably, you probably didn't do penance for something you should have done. All these different things, they're added up. And so you're going to go to a temporary hell. And the, the shortest temporary hell is 10,000 years. And you're going to be in hell and you're going to burn. And that fire, that painful fire is going to burn away the sin that they don't believe Jesus did through his death. It's a tragic thing. Because Jesus, once and for all, in that moment, look, after he provided purifications for sins, gone in an instant. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. He appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. He's gone. God has not only forgiven your sin, he's forgotten your sin. When you die, if you know Jesus, there's no sin to deal with. It was already gone, which is an amazing thing. But then watch this. If you didn't know Jesus as your Savior, the writer of Hebrews adds this, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Do you realize that? When you die, if you do not know Jesus, you face judgment. If you know Jesus, the sin's gone. There's nothing to judge. Your name's been written in the book of life. You go to heaven. You enjoy heaven. But if you don't know him, there's judgment. Revelation chapter 20. I quoted the first verse, but let's just read a couple verses here. You say, what is it going to be like? Here it is. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. We know that because Jesus said in John 5, the Father's entrusted all judgment to the Son. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. That's the uncreation of the universe. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. What kind of books are we talking about? We're talking about Everything a person ever did written down. You say, you say why, what's that about? Nobody will be in hell saying, I don't know why I'm here. 
Everything you ever said, everything you ever did, everything you ever thought that was a violation of God's standard written down. Sin. All there. Jesus, you say, well, I just don't know that Jesus would really do that. Well, okay, let's listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 12. I tell you the truth, men will give an account for every idle word they've spoken. Every idle word. Every time you said the F word, every time you took his name in vain, every, every time you, you spoke in anger, you called somebody a fool, you called somebody you did, all written down. And you'll give an account. And it says this, it goes on to say, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And it goes on to say, which is the second death. So what does that mean? Well, people go to Hades, as we said last week, a temporary place of punishment who didn't know Christ. That's the first death. This is the second death. This is forever. People say, well, you know, if I'm in hell, at least I'll have all my friends there. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus said it's a place of outer darkness. It's you alone in the dark for eternity, separated from everything that would have anything to do with God. You say, well, that seems a little harsh. Oh, no, you, you didn't want anything to do with him in life. So why would you want anything to do with him in the afterlife? Very just, but it doesn't have to to be that way. You can put your faith in Jesus who made a sacrifice for your sins so that whosoever believes should not perish but should have everlasting life. Jesus, the King of glory, did that for you and for me. I want to ask you the question, have you put your faith in Jesus? Has there been a moment when you said, Jesus, I know there's nothing I can do about my sin. I know there's no way that I can atone for it. There's no way I can make up for it. I need you to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. See, a lot of people make the mistake and they think, oh no, what I'm going to do to get to heaven is I'm going to be a good person because if you're a good person, you get to heaven. Not in the Bible. And what people don't understand, what, what you're saying is, you're saying, what I do should be good enough for God. And I don't think his gift is as valuable as he thinks it is. Be kind of like me saying, you know what, I, I just think so highly of you. And, and I had a long lost uncle who gave me a Picasso. And I, you know, I'm just not into Picasso and I want you to have it. And you say, oh, pastor, I could never take your Picasso without doing something. Tell you what, um, here's $20. Let's call it even. You just took a $40 million Picasso and made it worth $20. You meant well. It's just you devalued the gift because you didn't understand it. You meant well by trying to be a good person. You meant well by going to church, this church or any other. You meant well by trying to do some good things, but none of those things will get you to heaven. 
The only way you get to heaven is by giving your heart to Jesus. And the King of glory, the God who spoke it all into existence, had you on his heart and in his mind in eternity before time began. He loves you so much, and he knew you'd be here today. Some of you have never given your heart to Jesus. You never have. And so you, you have experience his presence around you, but don't make the mistake of thinking experiencing his presence around you is the same as having his power and presence in you. It's two different things. Don't make the mistake of thinking because you know about Jesus, you know Jesus. Two different things. There's some of you as well, and you'd say, you know, John, I had an encounter with Christ, but today you're not living for the Lord and you're living away from the Lord. And for you as well, this is a spiritual moment that would produce great life change in you if you'd rededicate your life to him. 